You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Union Road Presbyterian Church. For more information, join us on Facebook or visit our website at unionroad.org.uk. So we come in our sermon today to Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9. The last of our Reclaiming the Rainbow series. Look at all those cute cartoon animals. Do you see them all streaming off the boat? You've got the stripy zebras, the kangaroos hopping merrily down the mountainside, and oh, look, there's those cheeky monkeys clinging to the elephant's trunks as they make their boat for freedom. And then there's poor Mr. and Mrs. Noah, looking particularly frazzled, having spent such a long time cooped up in a floating zoo. But look, everything's all right. There's a beautiful rainbow in the sky, and everybody lives happily ever after. End of story. Well, unfortunately, we too often share in all these half-remembered characters in the Old Testament, don't we? We turn Goliath into nothing more than David's equivalent of giant and Jack and the Beanstalk. And this morning we've read about Noah, and some people equate Noah with the Old Testament's equivalent of Dr. Doolittle, you know, who walks and talks and walks along merrily with these animals. And isn't it incredible how the story of Noah has almost turned itself somehow into that cute fascination that fills children's nurseries and toy shops. The one who rounds up the animals, whose story ends with the colorful rainbow. Well, in the story of Noah, God tells us so much more than that. He tells us about himself. He reveals to us his character by what he does. And in these verses we read this morning, by the things that he says. And again, as we've sung already today, we find that it is all about Jesus. Remember the situation on earth before the flood had been grim? Let's turn back right quickly. These verses should be familiar to us now. Genesis 6 verse 5. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. You see, sin had found its way into every corner of our lives. Man's wickedness was so great, and God acted in response. And then if you were to read on in verse 6 in chapter 6, the Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I'm going to wipe out mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals, creatures that move along the ground, the birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. But one man and his family found favor in God's eyes. That was Noah, and he was rescued from the catastrophic flood in the ark which God had instructed him to build. He gave him the dimensions. He told him the materials to use. He told him how to fill it with animals, two of every kind of unclean animal, seven of every kind of clean animal. And then God sent the flood. He wiped out the rest of the known world, and God saved Noah and his family. From beginning to end, in this account we read that God is the source of judgment, but also the source and the author and hope of salvation. Noah and his family step out of the boat at the end of chapter 8, and into chapter 9 we read of God establishing his covenant with the earth. Usually a covenant would have been made in Old Testament times between a defeated nation and a conquering king. Let's think about this for just a moment. Usually a covenant was made under pressure. There was the bedraggled, the defeated nation in a groveling state 
promising to pay taxes to the great victor. It was all about the power of one over the others. One nation has been defeated, the other king stamps his authority all over them. The one who had gained control holds sway over their defeated enemies and treats them with utter contempt, and the agreement tended to be signed in blood. That could be done in two ways. It was either a a section of blood or a, a little drop of blood from the defeated king's arm. Or it might have been blood from a sacrifice that was made. It might have been an animal that was torn in two and sacrificed on behalf or to the king who had won victory. And blood from that animal was used to sign off on the documents, as it were. The whole image that a covenant brings is if we do not fulfill the taxes or agreement in any terms, then you are permitted to therefore sacrifice us and take my blood, take our blood in response to the lack of response to what we could not pay. If the bargain could not be met, that would result in greater humiliation and degradation for the conquered nation. Keep that in mind as you read Genesis chapter 9, verse 8, where we read of God the great conquering king making a covenant with Noah. But not only Noah, but Noah and his sons. And he makes this covenant with no strings attached. It was a one-sided, all full of God's grace and blessing. You see, God should have wiped the whole world out. But rather now, he preserves mankind. And God, by his grace, commits himself in blood to Noah and Noah's family. God is not demanding anything of them. He is not setting them up for a failure. He is not saying, if you fail, you will die. Despite God being the great king, the Lord over all the earth, he gives, he gives, and he's generous. He's not stingy. He's not seeking to wring taxes or favors from the people here on earth. Rather, he's saying, look, all I want you to do is acknowledge that I am the source of all of this. Look at verse 9. It's all of God. I now establish. Verse 11, I establish. Verse 12, the sign of the covenant I am making. The covenant is established by God. This promise is made by God to mankind. He is the source of the covenant. And if you read it very carefully, he asks nothing. He asks nothing of Noah and his descendants. God does not say, look, I'll bless you if you do this for me. No. In fact, God is so gracious, he even recognizes how sinful mankind still is. Cast your eye back again to the section that David read last week in Genesis 8, verse 21. Never again will I curse the ground because of man, even though every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood. Do you hear what he's saying? I'm not going to curse the ground anymore, even though you're still rebelling against me. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never see. He's saying, even though all your inclinations are sinful, I will still provide you with all that you need. God's covenant gives us a harvest. 
He blesses us in spite of our sin. He gives even though all he sees in us is grief. God's promise to us is that as long as the earth endures, despite our wickedness and our forgetfulness and our downright sinfulness, despite us being less than thankful for his provision and his patience with us, despite man's heart remaining the same as before the flood, he will give us all we need. The seasons, the routine of life, the night and the dark, the day and the night, times of refreshment, time to sleep, time to work, times of busyness. Our God is the source of all we have despite our waywardness and our ongoing ignoring of his existence in our lives. From the youngest to the teens and our 20s and 30s, right through to the oldest here today, everything we have, its source can be traced back to God. And he still gives us in spite of our sin. Our God is better than Santa. He has a naughty and a nice list. We are on the naughty list before God, but still he gives and gives and gives again. In theological terms, this is known as common grace. Common grace, not saving grace, but common grace. So whether you're a Christian or not today, you have received blessing after blessing from God's hands. God is good towards the people of the earth. He's already given you life, and he's given you everything you need for life. In God's common grace, we all benefit from his kindness. And those who are still sinful and selfish, we still do the things that we shouldn't, and yet still he enables us to even achieve great things. We can still give good presents at Christmas to those that we love in spite of our sin. That is part of God's common grace. We're not as bad as we could have been, but we're not as good as we should be. You see, non-believing mechanics can fix cars as well as Christian ones. Atheist doctors can still perform life-saving sur surgery. Non-Christian soldiers can still be involved in great heroic acts on behalf of others, even sacrificial, all because God in his grace holds back the full effect of what sin deserves as a result of the fall. It means we can enjoy the achievements of our favorite sports team. That is a grace gift of God. Or sing along to a musician we appreciate. That is God's good gift to his people. Be blessed as we gather as a family over Christmas. Be inspired by a teacher at school. Be enthralled by the inner workings of a tractor or a machine. All God's good gifts to us or we receive help or love from our neighbor next door. All God's common grace gifts towards us. Common grace gives us God's provision, and that can come in the form of people, places, and things. God will not curse the world again, we read in verse 821, as he did in Noah's day. And it helps us see in these verses that in the good things we enjoy, in the people we enjoy being with, God is the source of all that is good. And this should be a real comfort to us, that our God is a providing God. And he will not force anyone anywhere to acknowledge him as Lord. But at the same time, he will continue to provide for them with rain and sunshine and food and family and harvest. He's prepared to carry out his promises because he has covenanted himself to this world. It is his covenant that he promised that he has chosen to make 
with us. All that we have and are rests on him. Will you not let that truth settle in your hearts today? Does that not lead us to worship him or at least give him something more of our thoughts or our praise or our passion? All we have and are is from him, the source of everything. We also see in the Lord's promise to Noah this year, scope of the covenant. God's covenant with Noah is far and wide-ranging. Follow it through with me in verses 8 and 9 in chapter 9. The covenant is between God and Noah's descendants. Now remember for a second, Noah and his descendants are the only family surviving. So the promise made to his descendants means the promise that God makes here is for everyone. Verse 12, it's for all people, for every subsequent generation, and that includes us. For you and I are descendants of Shem, Ham, or Japheth. We all trace our roots back to Noah. Look at verse 9. It's for every living creature. Verse 13, the covenant between God and all the earth. Verse 15, it's for everything that moves. Verse 17, it's between me and all life on earth. We get the idea. It's a covenant between God and all people in all generations, all living creatures, all animals, fish, birds, plants. It's also the covenant between God and the earth itself, the land and the sea. The way the natural world works or the created order is a means by which we're able to discern and we can see something of his power. For all of it points us to the God who gave it all. This world shouts to us, God made me. Doesn't Psalm 19 verse 1 remind us of that? The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. It literally depicts heavens and skies, the whole earth there, as two old boys standing on a garden gate having a good old yarn, having a good old natter, Sharing the crack as we talk about locally. But what are they talking about? The regularity of God. Yes, the skies, the earth, the heavens are yarning to us every day saying, look around you. Where did it all come from? God made me. He is the source of all that we see and his scope is universal. He is the maker and the keeper. He is the God of all creation. And within the scope of this covenant is the permanence of his promise. It's an everlasting covenant. God will maintain his creation. God will care for it and he will tend it until the earth comes to an end. Floods may come on a smaller scale and might bring destruction to certain places, but never again will the whole earth be destroyed in this way. Creation is a witness of grace towards sinful man, and it provides a platform from which the good news of God's love speaks toward us. Noah's flood is referred to by other Old Testament prophets like Isaiah, who spoke of God's judgment and grace. Let me read you from Isaiah 54 and verse 8. God says, In a surge of anger I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness... I will have compassion on you, says the Lord. 
To me, this is like the days of Noah, when I swore that the waters of Noah would never again cover the earth. So now I have sworn not to be angry with you, never to rebuke you again. Though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken, nor my covenant of peace be removed. I was thinking of this as I was thinking about 2020 and the, the year that we wish we hadn't had, that we just want to turn the page of the calendar and get into 2021 and hope that things will only get better. But replace these words here. Though the world be shaken by a global pandemic and all the things we relied upon be removed, yet my unfailing love will, you, will not be shaken nor my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. Isaiah 54, verse 10. God's everlasting promise reminds us that man is worthy of judgment. In fact, God would be perfectly within his rights to wipe us all out with a plague of any sort. But God in his grace and mercy determines to preserve the life of man and multiply our descendants. All of us live in God's grace, whether we acknowledge it or not. And then finally from these verses, we read of a sign that God left as a mark of his covenant with Noah, a sign that God left with Noah, a sign that speaks of God Yet again, generosity is unconditional, undeserved. We read about this visible outward sign in verses 12 to 16. What is the sign? We all know it, don't we? The boys and girls watching today know it. Verse 13, I have set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. God uses the rainbow as a sign of the covenant. But notice a couple of important things about this rainbow. The first is this. The rainbow, and you need to listen to this, the rainbow is a reminder to God of his covenant with us. Listen to that again. The rainbow is a reminder to God of his covenant with the earth. Remember the little song that maybe we sang in Sunday school years ago? Whenever I see a rainbow, whenever I see a rainbow, whenever I see a rainbow, remember God is love. Well, here it's God singing that to himself. Whenever I see a rainbow, God is it. Whenever I see a rainbow, whenever I see a rainbow, I remind myself of my love towards this earth. When God sees it, he'll remember his covenant towards us. God places it in the sky as a reminder to himself. Again, he's the source of the covenant, and the rainbow is a reminder to him of his compassion. Now, whenever we say God remembers, and David touched on this last week, it is not, I will not forget, but rather remembering in the Old Testament is always a remembering that causes action. For example, if you remember a birthday, you don't just look around and say, oh, it's my wife's birthday today. I would like to think the men or the husbands in the congregation would at least think it would spur us to action. At least we would run out and buy a bunch of flowers or at least go and get a card or at least do something. It spurs us when we remember. What a reassurance to us. 
In fact, the whole of this passage is for our encouragement and our blessing. Although as we read chapter 8, verse 21, as man's heart remains the same, God still remembers his grace towards us. And a rainbow is one of those features in our world that may be accounted for, yes, by the natural laws of rain and sunlight and reflection, but here we read it has a purpose. That rainbow in the sky, and there'll be a rainbow in the sky somewhere today, even at this very moment. A rainbow appears always to the background of black sky, dark clouds. But the sunlight at that moment is is just about breaking through. And in the context of Noah and what has happened, there's a similar principle. The dark clouds of God's judgment have passed. The light of his presence is shining and the rainbow is set in the sky. You know, as the earth is drying up and as Noah steps out of the ark, the rainbow is seen. The storm clouds of God's judgment have faded away and the brightness and hope of God's covenant love shines through. In other Bible passages where a rainbow appears, it's always against the background of God's glory and greatness, his judgment and his mercy. In Ezekiel chapter 1 verse 28, it describes the radiant presence of God. In Revelation 4 verse 3, it describes the throne of God. And in Revelation 10 verse 3, it describes the heavenly messengers of God. The all-powerful God is but a God full of grace and compassion. But the second important thing about the rainbow is that in the Hebrew original Old Testament language, that word rainbow never appears. For example, in verse 13, it should actually read like this. I have set my bow in the clouds. Well, what kind of bow is it? Well, it's not the bow that you put in a girl's hair. It's not the kind of bow that you put to wrap a Christmas present with. It's not that kind of bow. Look at the shape of it. You can see what kind of bow it is. Ever played cowboys and Indians? Ever played Robin Hood? Ever got a bow and arrow? It's the shape of a hunter's bow. It's an object in those times that they would have been so familiar with. It may even have been a war bow representing an army, a soldier. Even more familiar to Noah and his family, having left behind a world that was full of violence and deadly, I'm sure they'd have seen people using bows and arrows. This is a bow in the sky. And you might also be forgiven for thinking that's a strange kind of sign that's attached to the promise that gives life, something that usually brings death. And it would be if the bow was pointing at us. But the rainbow doesn't go like that. The rainbow goes like this. And what direction is the bow pointing? It's pointing heavenward. So when these verses talk about God setting his bow in the clouds, it's God the warrior hanging up his weapon of war. Never again will he destroy the world in such a way as this. The bow pointing heavenward. It's not directed at earth. It's arched and aimed, pointed at God himself. It's almost as if he's saying, in future, I will take the arrows of judgment in myself. You see, God knew that the flood, his judgment on earth, would not ultimately change the hearts of mankind. 
He knew that his constant provision of seed time and harvest and the wonders of creation would not bring everyone to worship him. But if he was to have a people for himself, they would be a people who as a result would come by his grace on the basis of his loving initiative. And here's the problem. The flood did not cleanse the world of sin. In fact, we read on in Genesis 9, and it was shocking, wasn't it? It was a reminder that sin still sneaks in our hearts and ruins all that is good and wrecks families and relationships and good times. What should have been a time of great family rejoicing ends up with the righteous Mr. Noah getting drunk, going too far with the grape juice, making a hideous spectacle of himself in public, and then one of his sons, Ham, instead of hiding his dad away, humiliates him, gossips about him, gawks at him, and it looks like we're back to square one. New world, same problems, mankind's sin. And as we look at the very last verse of the Noah story in Genesis 9, verse 29, yes, Noah might be a tremendous age, but what do we read? And then he died. That's where we started the whole story of Noah, wasn't it? With that great long list of names of those who had died before him. And once again, Noah dies. Noah is not the ultimate hero in this story. Noah is not the final solution. Noah is not the savior. The ark is not the answer. A greater, deeper, lasting, lasting legacy of salvation is required. And God knows that. And we know that. And Noah knew that. We need God to provide a way that would bridge a huge gap between heaven and earth. Because the earth is still filled with violence and sadness and sin. God is still angry with sin. He will let fly with his arrows of judgment. Evil matters to a good God. He still needs to deal with sin. But this time, the arrow won't pierce our hearts because he takes it himself. Do you remember the covenant made in blood that I referred to? The lesser ones giving of their lives to pay the taxes to the greater ones. Friends, we could not fulfill the great tax burden of sin that we owe to God. But rather, he enters our world and signs off the writing off of our debts in his blood. The great king steps in for the beaten, oppressed, sinful world. And he dies in our place. You see, the Noah story sets the stage for Christmas, doesn't it? It paves the way for the salvation yet to come against the great black clouds of oppression at the time of Herod and the Romans. The light shines. And here the rainbow is that sign that sits between heaven and earth as a promise for the earth. But this time our God, later in the history of salvation, sends his son, 
who was raised on a cross between heaven and earth. And at that moment took the arrows of God's war bow as he faced the dark clouds of judgment to give us more than we could ever have imagined. This is the way God upholds his promise of life. He doesn't put away his bow. He doesn't smile at wickedness and pretend it doesn't exist. He still hates it and he is at war with it. But he didn't fire his judgment at us like we deserved. On the cross, Jesus Christ will absorb God's arrows of judgment for us. This is the sign that he gives us. And every time the storm hit, or plagues, or viruses come our way, we might think that God will judge the world, but no, out comes the sign of the rainbow. The rainbow is the promise of life, but it will cost the judge. It will cost the judge of all the earth his own life in human flesh to fulfill it. Like the covenant with Noah, the source of our salvation is God himself. He just didn't send another means of salvation, but would last for a time, just like the ark and for Noah. But he himself becomes the sacrifice and punishment for us that would be effective for all of eternity. The scope of his salvation is one that is open to all people everywhere. The sign of salvation is sitting now next to the Father in heaven, one who faced death on the cross for us, one who was raised to life. He is the Savior, Jesus Christ. And we praise God that when he sees his bow in the clouds, he will remember his keeping and preserving of this earth. But we are all the more thankful that when he looks to his Son, his hand of judgment is held back because of our trust in him. Next time we see a rainbow, don't just admire the colors, but be absolutely astounded at his eternal love. God promises, and he gives us, each one, a chance to live again in one day what will be a new world. Whenever he sees the rainbow, whenever he sees the rainbow, whenever he sees the rainbow, he remembers his love toward us. Let's pray together. Lord, we confess to having misused the rainbow but we are so thankful that whenever you see the rainbow, you remember your love. Whenever you see that rainbow, you stay your hand of judgment. You remember your covenant of love made in your own blood. And today, oh God, some of us need to stop and simply say sorry. Sorry for taking from you and never giving back. Sorry for having so much but returning so little. Sorry for expecting from you, but never thanking you. Forgive us, O oh God, for ignoring the source and the great scope of your love towards us. We want to pray for any who watch this today who do not yet love this Jesus who saves, this incredible God who is gracious. We ask, Lord, that you would bring them here to see that he has taken the arrows on our behalf so that they need not fear if they stand in Christ. For some, we need to stop and pray, Lord, we are sinners. 
We deserve your wrath, but we cling only to your love. We hold on only to Jesus and his taking of the warrior's bow and arrows into your heart instead of mine. Lord, for all our people, as we venture ever nearer Christmas and New Year, all of us have hopes and dreams. We all have fears and dreads. We all fear something or someone. So give us your spirit to see, oh so clearly this year, size and scale and scope and sign and source of all that we need is given, is here, is ours, is in you. Lord, we give you all the glory. And we ask that on this Sunday morning, you would strengthen the weak, sustain the weary, support the bereaved, be present with those in pain. Comfort the lonely. And Father-like, embrace those who are faithful. We ask and pray this in your wonderful saving name. Amen. 